Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red. I'm joined this week by Nadine Mouawad. Great to have you here while Nizar is traveling again. Uh, Nadine, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, Ben. It's great to be on the show. So uh, my name is Nadine. My friends call me Nads. I am a feminist activist. Uh, I've been active uh, in the political scene in Lebanon, alternative politics, for about 10 years now. Oh, wow. wow. Tell us really quickly uh, a few of the things you've been involved in. Well, I've been involved in uh, feminist organizing, setting up organizations, some queer activism. I also got involved in uh, mainstream politics, trying to think of alternatives to the current political system. Now my interests are a lot more focused on migration, labor, economy, that sort of stuff. And uh, we're super excited to have you here this week. Uh, we're going to be talking a little bit later about the women's movement here in Lebanon. Uh, and Nadine's going to sort of walk us through that. First, of course, though, uh, we have the news of the week. We have Monday coming up, which is our generator deadline. So the economy ministry and the energy ministry and the interior ministry have all gotten together and said, OK, if you are a generator owner in Lebanon, you have to install meters by October 1st. That's Monday. That's the day the podcast drops. And the generator owners are totally opposed to this, right? I, I think we've talked about this before on the podcast, actually. So the way it is right now, if you, uh, first off, electricity is terrible in Lebanon. So here in Beirut, we have it good. We only have three hours of outages. But there are places with like 12 hours, 16 hours, even 18. more. Yeah, right? And, and it's just absolutely terrible. So a lot of people pay private generators. Uh, and usually that's a flat rate. You know, like, so I pay roughly around $50 a month for a generator subscription in addition to my electricity bill, for instance. And that it doesn't matter how much I use, how much electricity I use. The idea with these meters is that you will only pay how much you use for generators, uh, which generator owners don't like that. And they've asked everybody to install these meters. Yeah, yeah. All the generators, like, generators are not really legal. <laughs> But now they're sort of legal because the government has recognized, no, this exists uh, and you have to install these meters. So uh, there are negotiations ongoing. As far as I understand, they're still ongoing. Uh, we're, we're recording this, uh, by the way, on Saturday afternoon. As far as I understand, there were negotiations between the generator owners and the government about this. Uh, it seems to be going down to the last minute. We don't know what's going to happen. Worst case scenario, the generators go on strike and they turn off all their generators, which means Lebanon is going to be seeing a lot more darkness. But it's also possible they'll come to some sort of deal at the last minute. Maybe like the generator owners say, basically, the tariff should be higher. You know, per kilowatt hour, they should be able to charge more. This is a price that's set by the government. So once they install the meters, they're saying, OK, well, maybe we'll install the meters, but you need to raise that price, what we're allowed to charge our customers per kilowatt hour. Yeah, I think what will happen is it will probably drag on for a while. There will be administrative hurdles. I think the, there's been quite a lot of outrage about the price that we pay for generators. Like it's it's gone up quite insanely in the last few years and I think people are right to be upset recently the municipalities put up like these formal sort of requests that they standardize the price per neighborhood so that you don't have one guy sort of monopolizing the generator supply in each neighborhood meters would be good but again the problem is the electricity it doesn't make sense that we still don't have enough power generated by our national company to be able to provide for everyone so while generators are like a band-aid Regulating them is fine, but it's the, it's still the electricity that's the problem. You know, we pay 
way too much for power in this country. And we actually had movement on that front as well this week, right, with this uh, tape that was leaked uh, from Yassin Jabir, who, who is a, a former minister. He's a current MP from Nabatiye. And there was this, like, WhatsApp message or something that was leaked to the press last Sunday about him just blasting the government about the electricity file. And he he had been commenting on this Adiar report. Adiar is a local daily that had cited this uh, Der Spiegel report which I think is non-existent, by the way. But basically, like, there's this news out there that back in uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel's June visit to Beirut, Siemens had made an offer to fix the electricity situation. So this story has been going around, right? And supposedly the government had rejected it. And this week, first off, we had this leaked recording of Yassin Jabber commenting on this and just blasting the government. And then somebody asked, I I think a reporter for uh, Al Arabiye, tweeted at the CEO of Siemens. It was like, is this true? And and the CEO was like, yep, we, yeah, we did offer. I saw that. And then Cesar Abi Khalil replied back and said on Twitter, we're happy to receive a formal offer or something. Right. So the question is, was a formal offer made or was this sort of like, yeah, Siemens in June saying, yeah, we'll come in and do an assessment and, and, and then like give some sort of formal offer. That That's sort of the question. But it seems as though there was something made back in June and, and who knows, like now that all of this has been stirred up again, maybe there will be some sort of process where, you know, uh, some company comes in and, and helps fix the electricity sector, which is just a flaming disaster right now. Yeah, it's just such such a boring thing to keep talking about. No, I mean, this electricity file has gone from party to party to party. They've all had their shot at being minister of energy and whenever we hear about someone trying to tender an offer or make a bid to fix the electricity like it's not rocket science it's really quite simple yeah yeah really quickly on at the un we had a sort of an issue with him leaving at the airport apparently there was a flight fully boarded ready to go to cairo and right before they were supposed to take off they got the order no we need you to deplane and and apparently it was michelle aoun it was him at the airport, and MEA had apparently, it seems, made some sort of booking error. So supposedly, when the president flies, like MEA is, you know, the, the flag carrier and everything. So he flies MEA, and they're supposed to reserve two planes. This is for security purposes, because sometimes politicians get assassinated, uh, or there are other problems. And so it seems as though maybe MEA didn't reserve the two planes or something or something weird happened and basically this plane full of people poor people like that had to like have their plans i mean it's just a trip to cairo it's very quick it's like an hour flight or something right uh and they had to get delayed quite a bit uh because of this but now there's like a prosecutor investigating this so i don't know we'll, we'll see what happens also at the airport this week we had this weird uh spat oh, between the disaster. army and the isf yeah i was there you were there i what? was there i was i've I've been at the airport twice this summer, both for disastrous. Like one time, the traffic was so big, I was lined up outside the airport. Oh it my was God. that big of a disaster. All the flights delayed. But I was there when that weird sort of clash broke out between the army and Wait, the so what, internal I mean, security forces. What happened? Because we heard like, oh, there was like maybe some sort of dispute over uh, like whose turf it was or whatever. And the ISF people like stopped checking people's passports and the army came in to do that instead, even though that is that was the ISF's post. It, and maybe there was some fight between the heads of the security services at the airport. Like what, what did you see on the ground? 
Well, I was there dropping off a friend. So we saw these long, long, long lines. And at the baggage security, they were just stopped. They weren't letting anyone through. So people just piled up, piled up, piled up, covered the entire length of the of the airport, the departure oh lounge. And then it was just halted for a good half an hour, I think. And we wouldn't understand. People wouldn't tell us. We could hear people shouting at each other. But that's become quite a staple in this airport. Like, I don't understand how a country whose economy is quite heavily reliant on tourism <laughs> doesn't make a tiny bit of effort right. to make this airport a bit more structured, organized. Um, I don't know what happened on that day. I read reports that it was a clash between the army and the internal security. But it's just a nightmare, you know, this airport yeah, business. They yeah. have to fix that. Yeah, yet, yet another thing. Electricity in the airport. Come on, guys. Get it together. I mean, what, one interesting thing that I pull out of all of this is, you know, the, people always say, oh, Hezbollah controls the airport and everything. No, it's not that simple. There maybe is some a certain truth to, like, Hezbollah's power at the airport compared to other people. But nobody controls the airport, right? It, it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. And I think this shows it. Like, you have security forces that are going at each other's throats at the airport. Clearly, like nobody is exercising complete control. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I thought it was Hezbollah who controlled the airport. Well, I mean, that that is the line that you hear. But I think I think that there's nuance to that, that people don't necessarily always uh, give. And speaking of the airport and speaking of Hezbollah, we had Benjamin Netanyahu talking about missile sites next to the airport during his uh, speech before the UN General Assembly today. Oh, he said, God, that yeah. guy. That guy in his UN speeches, honestly, like he just, stupidity outdoes himself every single time, no? He had better graphics this time yeah. than the Iran bomb, though. It wasn't like Wiley Coyote? It was, no, it was a lot more realistic. There was like an aerial photo, and then he identified, these are the three missile sites, blah, blah, blah. So Aoun was also there at the UN General Assembly, as we mentioned, and like he gave like a speech with some of like the same old rhetoric about scapegoating refugees and stuff. He he also had a graphic mm -hmm. <laughs> showing where refugees were in the country. And like he said things, you know, like, oh, crime's up, unemployment's up. You know, most of the refugees aren't political refugees and that sort of a thing. This is just regular stuff that comes from like the FPM. and Shameful. And, just shame. such an embarrassment. You know, every time they open their mouth and speak about refugees being the source of all our problems, honestly, I don't know where to bury my head. Well, it's it's politically popular, though. Like, you can see why they I do know. it. because and they you know, it's supported by all these European leaders who are just as hypocritical by the Trump administration. Like, yeah. anyone who wants to keep refugees out of their country for whatever racist, sort of xenophobic politics, it loves... The FPM loves Gibran Bessin, loves Michel Aoun, loves the idea that they will keep refugees here and that yeah, they'll take yeah. so much money to do that. Where is all that money? Where does it go? I don't see it in infrastructure. I don't see it in services. I certainly don't see refugees' lives get better. And, you know, they have to pay so much money now just to have an ECOMA or a residency permit. And a lot of Lebanese take advantage of that and make them pay thousands of dollars for something that would administratively cost $200 because now refugees are vulnerable and really need to get this permit to stay here. And right. what is the government doing about that? Nothing. It goes and begs for more money from from this international community. 
on the backs of refugees that they are treating like crap. No, I mean, it's definitely regardless of whether you like uh, disagree with it or not. Like it's definitely punching down. Right. Like it's this is this is a vulnerable population. But for like historical reasons and certain social reasons, like it is politically popular to punch down and, and totally. to scapegoat these people. And that's what Trump's doing, right? He's yeah, doing exactly. the same thing in the US. It's such Absolutely. a such a, you know, well oiled machine political play that, you know, all these it's the easiest thing to do is to say, you know, blame these vulnerable people. They are the problem. Those Stoke outsiders, hatred. yeah. Yeah, people who don't look like us, people who don't sound like us, people with different accents. And it's, I'm surprised that, you know, we don't do better in terms of educating people that that's such an obvious tactic, we shouldn't fall for it. It's yeah. been going on for, what, hundreds of years now. Yeah, yeah. I, but I mean, it, it still works. That's it the thing. works like magic. <laughs> um, Aun also, I, I think maybe one of his more important things, because that was a, all like, old rhetoric that he just rehashed right at the UN. But on his way back, like on literally on the flight back to Beirut from New York, he also opened up the possibility of forming a majoritarian government mm -hmm. instead of a government of national unity, which is what we've always been hearing. Like, oh, everybody's going to get together, sing Kumbaya, and we'll, everybody, all the parties will be represented in the next cabinet. That's been the idea, right? He suggested that possibly if we can form a government like this, we could do a majoritarian government, which would basically be parties who he doesn't agree with basically would get left out. Right. So do you think that would actually happen? No, I don't think so. Like, so this is viewed as sort of like uh, a negotiating tactic against the LF, right? And the PSP, perhaps, because a majoritarian government, Aoun still has to sign off on it. So it's not going to be a majoritarian without the FPM, first off. So what does that mean? Well, right now, we, we've seen this huge conflict over the Christian shares in cabinet between the FPM and the LF. Basically, it seems as though he's saying, well, if the LF doesn't agree to our positions, then perhaps the LF could just not be in the cabinet. And I mean, on paper, that looks okay. But anyone who like has been following this knows that's sort of like a ridiculous statement. It's ridiculous because Saad Hariri is the premier designate. I mean, he he is allied with the LF. It seems as though his uh, political patrons in Riyadh have basically said, have indicated that they want the LF to be in the next government as well. The LF has said, we definitely want to be in the next government. So this idea that Hariri would somehow flip on his allies and go against everybody and form a majoritarian government is ridiculous on its face. And if that isn't the case, then what, what are you left with? Removing the prime minister designate? That would be a constitutional crisis because there's no, nothing in the constitution that allows for you to do that. So you'd have to create some new, some new way to do that, right? Right. I love your enthusiasm about this. I find it <laughs> horribly boring you know they they keep putting out all i mean look the lebanese forces did quite well in the parliamentary elections right i mean they had yeah quite they doubled an increase their representation yeah basically in the seats you know they've been working really hard they have good ground game and i think it's ridiculous from all aspects that they would say we're going to try and do it without them that said i really don't care at all about these ins and outs that go on because we honestly don't know sometimes you think that you know, these negotiations are moves of political chess. And sometimes it's just stark incompetence. Like, I don't know if he meant that or if he just said it as a way to distract us. I, I'm not following at all these cabinet formation discussions. I don't think. I mean, th that's actually a really good point. You know, there, there's this big parlor game amongst people like me who try to 
like dissect every single little thing that somebody says. But you're right. Some of these things might just go out there without any sort of, you know, like plotting or planning or strategy behind them. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe because you're an American journalist. You, you're trying to find sense, you know. But I think journalists also back in the United States are dealing with this problem that the Trump administration comes out and says something entirely stupid and unplanned and people try to make sense of they assume that politicians are really smart i don't think they are i think the worst of the worst people end up in politics and i think we can't expect them to actually be intelligent i think they just hover around and try to make sense and attack each other and we try to make sense of it all I, th- I think that's actually a really good point. You know, w- one of the things that you see when you are a journalist as well is that there are certain politicians who look really slick on the outside, but then you get to talk to them and you realize they're all flash and no substance, you know. And then there are others who you don't really see who are actually really heavyweights, but they tend to operate behind the scenes a lot of times, right? And maybe don't talk to the press as much, oftentimes. Yeah. Okay, uh, I just want to note really quickly here, by the way, we are sort of entering the deadline period for cabinet formation. Right now, uh, as of Monday, it's been 130 days since Haru was designated, 132 days without a government. Uh, Haru's first government was formed in 2009. Uh, When it was, it, it took 135 days to form. We will reach that number Saturday. Makati's second government in 2011 took 139 days to form, and we will reach that number next Wednesday. And the further we go beyond these two deadlines, the more likely the government formation process starts to look like a Tamam Salam style 11 month, I think it's like 315 days uh, for him to form a government uh, in 2013, 2014. And that would be a disaster because once we start reaching that tipping point past these deadlines where we start going into this, uh, oh, we're more of a Tamam Salam style wait period and deadlock, then all of a sudden we will start to see people losing faith in the political institutions uh, and dangerously perhaps in the economic uh, in the economic situation in the country. And that could be uh, very disastrous for a lot of reasons. We, we talked last week about uh, the problem with housing and stuff like that. There are questions about banks, uh, stability of the economy in general, which isn't doing great, but it's hanging on right now. So like we're sort of this is sort of end game right now, I feel within the next couple of weeks, if we don't see a government, then bad things may start to happen. Uh, And very quickly as well this week, we did have a a general session of parliament and they passed a a whole bunch of laws uh, like judicial mediation, waste management, an arms trade treaty, uh, uh, soft loans uh, from like the World Bank uh, and other institutions. Things sort of like broke down sort of spectacularly on Tuesday night, like an hour into the evening session. I I think we're going to have to we don't have time to do this now, but we're going to have to go into this like really in detail uh, in the, uh, maybe one of the coming uh, weeks and talk more about Parliament and about these laws, because it is very important, especially as we uh, head towards October 16th, which is the start of the formal fall session of Parliament when they have to pass a budget, which is another one of these things that without a government, we don't have a budget. And Parliament then is also, uh, they have their hands tied constitutionally as to what they can do. So a lot of bad things start to happen 
if we don't have a cabinet. So this week, though, we want to dive deep into the women's movement in Lebanon. That's why we have you, Nadine, here. Uh, we're super excited to have you here. And, you know, the women's movement here in Lebanon, it, it, it is quite strong, quite vibrant. Um, back in March, uh, when we had International Women's Day, uh, several women's groups came together to, to organize this march. Uh, and and uh, thousands of like a pretty diverse group, I'd say, like showed up. And, and also, this is a group that uh, it isn't just, you know, a, a bunch of white women or something. It, it is uh, a, a very diverse group that takes intersectionality uh, very seriously as well, right? Yeah. I think the women's movement in Lebanon is uh, quite strong the past few years. When I, when I first came into this movement, the most uh, popular issue was mostly about the women's right to pass on her nationality to her children and her partner. That was the most famous campaign. And uh, we would ask people on the street, what do you think is the most important issue? And most people would talk about that, just because it was the most visible issue. And I think if you fast forward 10 years to today, you really have a big variety of issues, of causes, of awareness, of consciousness within this movement that's really taken on a lot of intersectional things to do with race, with refugee status, with income levels, with class, with different gender identities, sexual orientation. It used to be very hard to talk about anything marginal within the mainstream women's movement. It used to be near impossible. I remember discussions, because I worked in a lot of these NGOs when I was younger. I remember discussions about how the woman featured on the brochure doesn't look Lebanese enough, is a bit too dark, like her skin's too dark. And oh, I wow. remember, you know, having these arguments like, what does a Lebanese even look like? What are we, how do we think of ourselves? And now you've got a lot of groups and organizations, collectives, student clubs that are a lot more aware that we're fighting for freedom of all women in this country. It doesn't mean just for Lebanese nationals of a certain means who can access a certain set of privileges. It means for every woman who's here, for whatever reason, regardless of her status, regardless of her color, regardless where she's from. Um, and we need to fight for justice for everyone. And you see that reflected in a lot of the activities that we do, um, particularly in this thing we have called the Feminist Bloc, where you've got Syrian organizations, Palestinian migrants, uh, domestic workers, queers, all sorts of causes that come together and try to organize. So that gives me a lot of hope. I think this is one of my favorite periods in the women's movement that I've been a part of. And just for our listeners who maybe don't like know what intersectionality is, like I I kind of think of it as like negative synergy, like like basically it's the idea that if you're um, sort of like more than one minority, those it, it's more than just the sum of its parts. Like you're affected in unique ways if you're like coming from an American perspective, you know, if you're a a woman of color like you don't just have to deal with the things that women like white women have to deal with plus the things that black men have to deal with for instance you like there's a unique like negative synergy uh, a confluence of factors that make your experience uh unique and and make the um make the challenges that you face and the way society views you uh different from other people's is that accurate um that's quite a complicated way of putting it um but yeah, it's it's sort of the idea that we don't live single issue lives and that gender in particular is not 
the only thing that affects our position in this world and affects our access to rights. Uh, there's also race, there's also class, there's also ability or disability. The way I like to think of intersectionality is like this. It means that you can be at once oppressed and an oppressor. And that's what white people struggle with a lot, to just, you know, especially if they're poor white people or they're white women who have to, of course, struggle with sexism and rape culture. And we we're, we both talked about the Brett Kavanaugh hearings for the U.S. Supreme Court. Like, that's a nightmare for women, particularly white women who might be, you know, Republican or fiscally conservative, to have to see that sort of violence play out on national TV. Of course, they have a lot of issues to deal with, but it also means that as white women, they can be oppressive of women of color. They can be oppressive of domestic workers, of sex workers, of LGBTs, of Latinas, of, I don't know, other women or other minorities. So it's a way of thinking of yourself not as a pure, you know, I am the oppressed person, this experience is horrible, this experience needs to be addressed, but that there's a multitude of experiences and I am one drop in this ocean of issues and I have to learn to understand when am I privileged and when am I powerless. Mm. For in the Lebanese context, that means understanding that while you can be a kick-ass Lebanese women's rights activist who's, I don't know, running for parliament and it's changing all these laws and advocating at the United Nations, you might have at home a domestic worker from Sri Lanka or Ethiopia who you pay a hundred dollars a month. Yeah. And in this case, you are the oppressor. Yeah. Or for Lebanese who don't stand in solidarity with Syrian women, when people like the Free Patriotic Movement uh, condemn them or ask them to stop having children. And the discussion's big now because of Nadine Lebeke's movie. I don't know if you got a chance to see that movie. I haven't movie. seen it yet, no. Dude, that mo- that's it's caused such an uproar among my friends. I'm not sure. I don't want to give out spoilers or talk about it now. Maybe you can discuss it in a later podcast. But that movie is quite... You know, it presents these issues in in a way that makes you think about, okay, how do we as Lebanese look at these people who live in our country? They yeah. make up 10% of the population here, and we just don't really see them as humans with rights, with voices, with stories. With So yeah, that's how I think of intersectionality in my case, that I can, that I'm oppressed in so many ways, but that I also am in a position to oppress others, and I need to be mindful of that. So as far as the women's movement goes, uh, what what have been the major fights along the way? And what, what have, you know, what where have the wins been? Where have the losses been? Where has the energy been focused? So in the past six, seven years, a lot of, been, have been, a lot of it has been focused on the domestic violence law, which got passed by parliament in 2014 with a lot of problems. Of course, they didn't include marital rape. They didn't include a custody reform. And that's the thing about trying to change, to better the lives of women using the penal code. It's always such a bits and pieces sort of approach to it, right? You fix one law here, but you still have a law about adultery that says, you know, you can go to jail if your husband accuses you of adultery. You have, you're trying to change one law that criminalizes homosexuality, but you've still got public decency laws that are just 
They're tailored in a way to keep people in check and to police people's behavior, young people who talk about sexuality, etc. And this is where what I was talking about earlier, marginalized women get left out of the equation. So when we lobbied for the domestic violence law, a lot of us wanted it to be about domestic violence. It ended up being about family violence. What well, what is the difference? I don't I don't know that. So if it was about domestic violence and you had a roommate who was a woman and you were violent towards her, the domestic violence law would protect her. It would protect domestic workers who lived in your house. Uh not just the family members. Not just family gotcha. related family members, okay. right? And so there was a lot of issues with this law, but I think the movement that got it passed was quite admirable. I think Kafa did a great job sort of spearheading this campaign, putting it into the media. I think... Uh, Kafa's a local NGO uh, that advocates for stopping violence against women. Right? Exactly. Right. It's been around since 2005, um, kind of the flagship NGO, women's rights NGO in the country. I think the internet and sort of social media work that a lot of young feminists did at the time to make the issue more accessible to people. I remember, for example, when we we used to march in the streets holding a coffin with a statistic that said uh, one woman is killed every month because of family violence. And that sort of shifted also the narrative because people always thought, oh, that doesn't happen here. It doesn't happen to Christians. It only happens to like Shia Muslims in the in the villages and a lot of like Muslims would think that doesn't happen here that happens to like people up in Akkar but this sort of showed really it doesn't have a, a religion to it it just happens to everyone yeah yeah so also in the recent years there's been quite an awareness and the you know new discussions about rape culture in the country about sexual violence about what perpetuates it what allows it to happen what upholds it whether it's the laws or the media, or how people talk culturally in general about women. For example, our Ministry of Tourism always has these ads, these video campaigns of women dancing in like very little clothing as a way to show Lebanon as a you know, tourist destination. Yeah, right. And so there's a, there's a general culture that sort of condones sexual violence against women. And now there's a few sexual harassment laws particularly for the workplace that are in parliament that different groups have proposed, the National Commission for Lebanese Women's working on something like that. But I think there needs to be more of a, a public sort of women, young women-led uproar against this sort of harassment to make it not okay culturally for men to get away with harassing women. And this, you know, is a struggle all over the world. It's happening everywhere. It's sort of uniquely universal experience for women to get to experience sexual violence from men. And we, we're working on it here the same way women in all countries are working on it. And uh, how would you characterize, though, the the level of success or lack thereof? You know, like, certainly we have a long ways to go, right? But have, have we had successes as far as this goes along the way? Or do you think, no, there's just a lot left to go? Every social movement operates in, like, cyclical way, right? So you advance, you face backlash. You advance, you face backlash. The more public space that women claim, the more men are going to be outraged and are going to try and use that as a political weapon to say, look, our society is crumbling. Our women are not getting married. They're not raising children. They're very independent. They don't want a husband, etc. So I expect, 
I think we've been living through the backlash now to a lot of the gains that we got in 2013, 2014. We can talk a little bit about women in the political scene, like politics with a small p, parliament, cabinet, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think it's really interesting what you say about claiming political space and claiming space, right, in the in the political sphere, like lowercase or whatever. I noticed, um, you know, n- not even talking about parliament, but I noticed when I was covering the Lebanese elections, I would go to a rally and without fail, it was like a very male dominated space, right? E- even in the cities, uh, usually it was like predominantly men. And especially as you got outside the cities as well, like it was like the the number was always high. The percentage of men was always high. Right. And it just like went even higher when you went outside the cities. And like it really drove home the point to me that here in Lebanon, politics is a man's game. You know, not not just in parliament, which we have, what, six women out of 128 now, uh, which is like a record number, (laughs) but but down to the very low levels of just like organizing and having political rallies and stuff like that. It's just a male dominated space. Absolutely. I think one cannot stress enough how male dominated a space it is like mainstream politics in this country. It just it blows my mind, even when we think about the alternative movement that tried to present candidates for parliament this time around. What were they called? Kuluna uh, Watani. Kuluna Watani, Beledi something, the yeah, campaign Beledi. in Beirut. I don't even there remember Sabah, their names. Um, Sabah, yeah. 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 All of these campaigns are shockingly male-dominated. Even the ones that claim to be on the left, that claim to be activists, that claim to be progressive, that claim that women's rights are important to them. The most effort they did was to make sure that there was women candidates. But the people running the operations, the people making decisions, it was an incredible boys club. And I think that men who want to be our allies in this country have to revisit how they actually feel about women's rights and about feminist issues. And if they really want to be supportive or they just want to get, you know, uh, what we call give them a feminist cookie or give them a gold star for being, you know, checking all the boxes. Yeah. It was really difficult uh, during the elections to to try and understand what actual impact can we have to increase women's political participation besides looking at the numbers. So there's, you know, friends of mine run this organization called Women in Front that look at pioneering women in politics and are very concerned about the quota a gender quota in parliament, about getting the numbers up. We're very disappointed when we didn't move a budge on the number of women elected. And so we have to think about, as you are saying, from the bottom upwards, like are the women organizing, are they taking lead? Are men in this country willing to follow women who are not just married to their favorite politician? When when I went up to Akar, for instance, to cover, I, I covered a bit in Akar, the, the northernmost district of Lebanon. Uh, somebody told me, literally, like, no, the there, there was a women's list, right? And, which is insane. I, I don't think that's ever happened anywhere. So in one way, like, Akar is very progressive in that way. They had, like, a complete slate of women uh, running there. Uh, they didn't win, obviously. But somebody told me before the election, like, they're not going to win because like here in Akkad, we're very conservative and we will not follow women. 
uh, as leaders. They just straight up told me this. Right. Um, I met that list actually. They were good, good people. I think I don't know if they were serious enough about this, the political stand they were taking in terms of the magnitude of what they were doing. So because I, because I said to the candidate running, I said, "What you're doing is historic. A women's yeah. only list running against." And by the way, all the other lists had zero women. Yeah, right. It, it was literally like women running against all the other men. Fucking night and day, yeah. But I don't think that it was part of their... Because that's the problem with civil society, right? I don't think that we under, we put it within a larger political context. I think they saw it as an opportunity to get more media coverage, to make it more of a, like a gimmicky thing. They weren't willing to push the women's agenda. Because if you want to change you know, gender and politics, you need to do two things. You need to be at the table and you need to be on the agenda. And these are different fights to have. Well, they they did do the first thing, right? They tried to get to the table. But not enough. Not enough. I, I can't explain how difficult it is to be the only woman or one of three women in a room of 35 men. It's really quite impossible. And I say this as someone who's loud and obnoxious and can yell and my gender doesn't present, you know, extremely feminine. And I can, you know, I fit comfortably in those spaces. And still, sometimes I want to cry because someone said something really sexist and horrible to me in front of everyone else. And I have to struggle to be like, I am making this point and you're going to listen to me. And so I always think that for a women's movement to break in, we have to break in in the thousands. We have to be organized in the tens of thousands to come up. And I'm not talking about mainstream politics. I don't I don't care so much about mainstream politics. They can do whatever they want to do. Although it's also kind of ludicrous that they didn't put enough women. They didn't run enough women in their in their lists, but that's fine. But on the other Despite side Despite promises to the contrary beforehand, yeah. Exactly, <laughs> like Hariri and Aaron yeah. and everybody was like, "Oh, we love women, we love women." You know, such bullshit. <laughs> but also we have to be careful that our cause is not tokenized. Right, because you don't want to, you know, what's happened now, I think, in the uh, with the Democrats in the United States is that women's issues have become so tokenized uh, that people thought, you know, women are not going to allow this to happen. Women are going to vote for women. It just when you make it into such a one dimensional issue, you kind of lose it. So I think here we thought, okay, we've done so much progress. These parties are definitely going to put women in leadership. Of course, they didn't, or they gave us one token women and everybody thought wow you know progress <laughs> but to go back to to my people which is people on the left civil society activists etc we need to do so much better we need to organize in larger numbers in intersectional ways to come into this movement and say okay if we think of ourselves as reformists as revolutionaries as people who want to propose an alternative system an entire alternative system, economically, politically, to the one we have, we have to do better from the get-go. We have to imagine women-led parties, and we have to be okay with that. We have to imagine what it means for women to speak more in meetings. It means the men have to speak less, right? If the meeting is one hour long, you cannot speak for 50 minutes and then say, oh, let's give a chance to women. You have to shut up in order for women to get half an hour. There's limited resources. We can't all be the leaders of this movement, right? And so for people who want to give women chances, 
One issue we have problems with is speaking on panels. So post-elections, a lot of panels were organized to invite people to, you know, posit on what happened, what went wrong, what went right, etc. And you'd find 10 men and one woman. And for more women to speak, it means men have to just get out. Yeah. Just shut up for five minutes so a woman can say a point. So we still have a lot of work to do, I think, among our own resistance movements to get it right. Can I, can I just add one thing on that? Like an observation I made, I uh, got invited to sort of like an uh, an activist group. It was like an uh, anti, it was like waste related, like landfill and all that stuff related, like a low, just like a local community thing, right? And it was a woman who had organized everything. Probably most of the people who came to like this local gathering of like a dozen people, like at least half of them were women. It was like at somebody's house, you know, but then like the men came in and like almost all of them were late to begin with. And then they all like led the, like dominated the conversation as well. You know, which, which this is just like, not even super political, just like on a local sort of issue or whatever you had, like the women organizing things <laughs> and doing things and right. then the men coming in and taking over. And <laughs> I know, that's such, I don't like, what is it with men? Why? Are they so annoying? <laughs> I don't understand how difficult is it to just know your place and like just. Well, it's the thing we've been taught that our place is like everywhere. to lead and like to explain to women uh, these things. And, you know, and, and so I think it's very much a learned behavior. Like, pe- like people don't necessarily do it. Uh, you know, they don't mean to be dominating conversation, but then you notice it if you look for it, you know. Right. But we keep telling them, we keep saying, like, there's a limited amount of... And this is the thing that people don't always think about. But for women to gain rights, men have to lose some rights. And this is, I think, the problem with liberal women's movements, that they try to make it like, no, we can all be equal, we can all be happy. There's no such thing. If a man has complete, full right to get a divorce whenever he pleases, for whatever reason he pleases, and a woman doesn't, for a woman's right to access the same level of divorce, it means the man has to lose his absolute power, right? Yeah, you lose that position of privilege, right? That's, of course. That's what the, that's what the, like, people, uh, you know, on, like, liberals will say, you know, like, oh, yeah, we can, we can all be equal and everything. But then they also say, yeah, but we're against male privilege. But then uh, you're right, like, in order to actually be equal, you have to lose that privilege status, which does mean like going going down a notch or two, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's okay. It's right? okay. I mean, I guarantee the world will be better for everyone once people like just are okay with that. And you know, it doesn't have to be taking up all that space all the time. But here it's quite... I, j- I want to say one thing about the way our identity cards are structured in this country, which has been quite a pet obsession of mine. If you look at how we're registered as citizens in Lebanon, we are registered in files that are headed by uh, the father, right? So I don't exist as a unique citizen, a unique Lebanese citizen. I exist as the daughter of my father, who is a Lebanese citizen. And it's just a bureaucratic classification system. It's almost just a taxonomy that happened with the Ottomans and that we still have today. So the name of the folder is my religious confession. And that's a big reason why our religious, our sectarian divisions are so important because administratively, 
That's how you're divided in the country. It's literally a classification system. It's as if you have to, you've got files and folders on your computer divided along religion, and if you have to shuffle those and now divide along, I don't know, uh, serial numbers or the last, the first letter of your last name or any other way, then you have to shuffle the entire system. And that, I think, is where women's liberation sits bureaucratically. If we are not independent citizens of this country, if I don't have an idea with just a serial number versus the ikhraj qaid that we have now, which is literally the mukhtar or this you know, elected little position in my village has to go and vouch for me that I am indeed the daughter of this Lebanese man. Unless we get rid of that system entirely and have a brand new system where we're all numbered from one to five million, like our passports, I don't think women can access a lot more political rights because that's how politics operates. You go to the head of the family, he's got seven people under him, and you ask him for seven votes. Right. It affects where we can run as women, where we can vote as women. We just have to follow fathers or husbands. And I think that's the heart of the secularist demand that needs to be put out there more prominently in the country. We need to get rid of this ID classification system. And that's a super important point, like just on the bureaucracy itself, but also because you mention it, there's this sectarian and religious part, right? Where if you're talking about women's rights and it like this often uh, encompasses a lot of things about like family rights and, you know, giving uh, nationality, right, to, to your kids and a lot of things dealing with children and everything. And that necessarily means you're talking also about like, personal status type things, things that are not necessarily governed by the state itself, but instead are governed by religious sects and by religious courts, you know, in, in this country. And so if you really are talking about women's uh, women's rights here, you're also talking about clawing power away from the sects, from the patriarch, from the grand mufti, Literally, from, uh, yeah. like, which is kind of a third rail in Lebanese politics, isn't it? How do, how do you do how do you how do you do that? Absolutely. I think the control that these religious institutions have over the Lebanese population and everybody who lives here needs to be renewed every once in a while, right? Because you do have a younger generation today that's a lot more into civil marriage, into secularism, that's a quite distance from the civil war. That's a bit we should not take for granted that something like 3-4%, I don't remember exactly how many people voted against the current regime of sectarian parties. So if I were the patriarch or the mufti, I'd be like, hire me some youth coordinators. We need to get cool, get me a Twitter account. <laughs> like we need, to, we need to convince this new generation by hook or by crook that they have to obey us, that we are important, that our authority matters. And sometimes, yeah. you know, I'd hear friends of mine talking about that there aren't enough priests in Lebanon. So every time they go to church, the clergy says something like, please tell your sons that they can apply to become priests. Like there's a problem, you know? So I think it's a symbiotic system that feeds off of each other. These horrible politicians are sectarian. And so they need the religious institutions to be just as powerful economically. They don't pay taxes, for example. They get salaries from the state. 
They need to be powerful legally. So you need to give them something to do. You need to give them a function, divorce, marriage, etc., etc. And you hear this thing about clergy who rail on during the sermon about civil marriage and what a problem. I've had a friend go to a wedding this summer and she told me that the priest went on for a good 10 minutes about how proud he was of the couple for getting married in a church versus all the other couples that are heading off to Cyprus to get married. Oh my God. Like totally out of context at this woman's <laughs> wedding, you know, talking about the problem. But they, you're right, they have to be upheld, they have to be given power and authority and status. They comment on the politics in their weekly sermons. On Fridays or on Sundays, you hear the blasts about the cabinet formation. Like, how does that have to do with God or with, you know, comfort or solace or any of that? But yeah, I think it's it's all everywhere in the world. It's always these religious men and political men that have to feed off of each other to keep themselves in power. And I think it's when the women rise, the most marginalized of the women rise up and say, you have no authority we're not going to allow you to, even if you beat us and rape us and do whatever you want, we're not going to allow you to have this sort of authority over us. I think that's the only thing that's made any change possible anywhere in history. Wow. And on that note, uh, I think we have to we have to call time here. Uh, thank you so much for coming. I, I know we did sort of like a, the most terrible thing in the world, which, which is like, oh, let's do a woman's episode and let's find a woman to come on. <laughs> our, our, first, our first woman guest is, yeah, we tried not to first do that. First woman guest? First woman guest? No. Yes, you you are the very first one. Thank that you so much ridiculous. for coming on. But I mean, yeah, no, it is. Uh, and we would absolutely love to have you back as well in the future. Uh, thank you so much for coming on and thank, uh, thank everyone for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week. Nizar uh, will be back, inshallah, <laughs> to, to host, uh, to co-host next week. Uh, until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nadine Ma'ud. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. podcast is brought to you by myself Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson and the music is by Omar El Fiel.